0: There's not one of us here today that uh, hasn't at times wondered, can you really change the composition of a human heart? Can that really happen? We live in a world, Lord, in which we just don't see people change all that often. And so God, to see and hear a story of uh, just a marriage that was absolutely over and uh, that you redeemed and that you changed two hearts and brought them back together uh, is encouraging, to say the least. And, uh, Father, I pray that the message that we would take out of Phil and Tina's story is that there's not one of us here today that you are done with yet and that you are, are, are not continuing to work on to make us into the kind of people you want us to be. Uh, Father, we're in the book of Jonah right now, as you know, studying it and learning about you in it. And, Lord, Jonah learned the same thing, that you are the one who works in people's lives and in his life and that though we might run from you, you always receive us back when we run to you. So God, bless our time in the Word now. May our minds be attentive and our hearts be tender. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I mentioned in my prayer, we've been uh, studying the book of Jonah this fall here at Scottsdale Bible, and we've seen that Jonah is really good at running from God, right? Really good at running from his call on his life. And we've seen also, however, that Jonah learns to run to God. That, That Jonah learns not just to run from God, but to turn and run back to God when he's been running from Him. And today we're going to switch gears, we're going to go to third gear, and we're going to learn how Jonah now learns to run for God. So that's the progression. He's run from God, he's run to God, and now he's going to run for God. Uh, That's where we are in our journey through through Jonah. And so let's read what God has to say for us in His Word in Jonah chapter 3. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's about four-fifths of the way through the Old Testament, a small sliver of a book. (laughs) If you can't find it, look in the table of contents. I've had to do that. It's really, really small. But uh, find Jonah and find chapter 3, and we're gonna, I'm going to read it for you, and you're going to follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible, I always put the Scripture up here on the screen behind me. It's also in your outline there, so you can have it in front of you. So Jonah chapter 3, let's just read all 10 verses. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into this city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may... Relent, turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may perish, so that we may not perish. When God saw that they, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So, folks, once we have settled that life is about learning to run to God and not from Him, what we read in Jonah three, and I don't want you to miss this, is that He has a task for us now a special task. In other words, the whole Christian journey is not just learning to, run fr- learning to run to God when we run from Him, but once we've established that, once we've established a relationship with Christ and now we are walking with Him, He now wants us to run for Him. And what's involved in that? Look up here on the screen. This is the main point that I get here from Jonah 3, and that is that we need to learn to share His love and grace, the reality of who He is with those around us. I think that's the progression that we see here in the book of Jonah. He ran from God, he ran to God, and now God says get with the program and learn to run for me, sharing the truth of who I am with those around you. And so when it comes to the people that you and I work with in our daily jobs, or our neighbors, or our service providers, or our family members, or friends, or acquaintances, or whatever community you live in, whether it be Scottsdale, Phoenix, Mesa, Fountain Hills, Cave Creek, Glendale, wherever you live, God calls you and me to run our lives for him and to share this message of forgiveness and eternal life with those around us. So the same forgiveness and love and grace that has received us back into relationship with Jesus, he now says, run for me and share that with those around you. Don't miss this. It's an evangelistic calling that God gives to everyone who has been touched by his love and his grace, who've been touched by Jesus and now are called to run for him. And so in our time remaining this morning, I want to talk to you about how we can do this. I want us to look closely at the text here and see how we can practically live our lives in such a way that makes a difference in the kingdom of God with those around us. Because I think Jonah 3 contains some nuggets in here and how exactly we can share our faith in an effective way with those around us. And unlike maybe many teachings that you've heard over the years on evangelism, I think today is going to be rather fresh for you. Because what I'm concerned most, most with as we talk about evangelism today and as we look at Jonah chapter 3 is your daily world. Your Monday through Saturday world, not just your church Sunday world. In other words, check this out. George Barna, in his stats, reveals that about one out of ten adults who come to faith in Christ, only one out of ten, come to faith within the context of a church building. Does that surprise you? Only one out of ten. And you say, well, where do the other nine out of ten come to faith? Through you in the marketplace, through you at schools, through you and your families, through you and your friendships, through you and your service providers. In other words, it's only about 1 in 10 adults who come to faith in Christ that walk an aisle or fill out a card or do it through some evangelistic event. No, most of them come to faith through dyadic one-on-one relationships that you and me have with them in our daily lives. And so what matters most, kind of like Jonah walking through Nineveh there, what matters most is what are we doing in our daily lives in such a way that can make a difference as we reach out to those that we rub shoulders with. Five things we learn from Jonah 3. Five things on how we can run for God in such a way that we share His love and grace most closely with those in our sphere of influence. And so here's the first thing we learn. Look up here on the screen. And that is, first and foremost, be utterly clear about the message that you're bringing to them. Be utterly clear about the message that you bring to others. And so look with me again at verses 1 and 2 of Jonah 3. This is fascinating. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so it's pretty clear that God had something to say to Jonah, that he's to pass on to those in Nineveh, right? And we already know what that message is, because this is the second time that it came to Jonah. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 2, in which God said, Cry out against the city, because their wickedness has come up against me. So it's a message of repentance in keeping with God's holy law back then, which he commanded all people and all nations to obey. We'll get to that in just a second here. But skip down to verse 4 and notice, interestingly, what Jonah did then. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so don't miss what's going on here, folks. Jonah receives a clear message from God. I mean, you can't be more clear than to tell a nation to repent, to turn to God or else. So he receives that clear message from God there in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 4, without changing or altering this message at all, he delivers it to the exact same people that God wants him to deliver it to. In other words, Jonah is utterly clear about the message that God has for those around him. And all I can say is what an awesome principle this is for you and me today in sharing our own faith. You see, you and I don't have the same message, thankfully, that Jonah has, right? This was Old Testament times. This was a specific instance of dealing with a very wayward nation within the context of Old Testament law. And so the message that Jonah got was specific for Nineveh or Assyria, the nation at that time. And again, it was in the context of the law, which was a high moral code that God was asking the Israelites and even neighboring nations to live, as we know in the New Testament, to show that, quite frankly, they can't measure up. They can't live this. But now you and I live 2,000 years after the ministry of Jesus. And so you and I have a message of what? Of grace, of the gospel of grace you and i have a very clear message that god loves all people that he's come to us in christ that forgiveness is being offered if we will but turn and walk with him and believe and trust in him and that's the message that you and i have today it's the same obligation that jonah had it's only a different it's a fulfilled and completed message it's the gospel and i don't know if you've noticed or not folks but we have such a propensity today, I mean, American evangelicals, to be somewhat unclear and not all that straightforward about this awesome message that God has given to a dying world. I mean, I actually find two problems today. I find that that about half of the evangelicals in America, half the Christians, tend to shrink back from sharing their faith at all. That's what the statistics show. So half of us are like not even showing up when it comes to sharing with those around us. But then i find that those that do show up many times aren't all that clear about the message i'm not sure that it's getting through i think we've got to muddy the waters in certain ways one of these i know this to be true one of the ways i know this to be true is through my anecdotal experience that i've had over the last 25 years of sharing my faith as a pastor you see what will happen is that sometimes people will show up at my office my doorstep as seekers having maybe visited church for a while or rubbed shoulders with Christians out in the marketplace and they just have a lot of questions. So they figure a pastor should be an expert so they come to my office and they start drilling me with questions. And after about 10 or 20 minutes of questions at one point I I just just don't get the sense that they really understand the gospel so I'll I'll do this almost every time. I'll say, let me ask you a question. I'll say, "Uh, has anybody ever sat you down and very clearly in no uncertain terms explained to you the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that you are crystal clear about what it is that God has done and wants from you so that even if you don't agree with it, even if you're not ready to be a follower yet, you could repeat it back to me so that I could understand it so that we're at least all on the same page as to what the gospel is. And what do you think their answer is about five times out of ten? Their answer is, nobody's ever done that with me. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. After all the conversations that you've had with family members and friends and like the 40, 50% of Americans who say that they are conservative Bible-believing Christians, nobody's ever explained to you clearly in no uncertain terms what the gospel itself is? Well, not to the point that they could repeat it back. And the awesome thing is when you ask it like that is that then I say, do you mind if I do that for you right now? Do you mind if I share it with you so that you could share it back with me? And every time somebody will say, I don't mind at all, I'd love... know. And so what is our clear and straightforward message? What is our clear message? About 10 years ago, my uh, daughter, Abby, my middle daughter, was um, getting baptized in her very first church. And uh, she was about seven years old at that time. And we've been priming her for months for this baptism. I just didn't want to be embarrassed in front of the whole church as the pastor. So you guessed it. I told her exactly what to say and how to say it and all this. It was about as fake as a $3 bill. But anyways, it was from her heart but I, you know, had said, if, when I in the tank ask you in front of the whole church, Abby, are you here because your parents want you to be or because you choose to? You say, you choose to. And, you know, are, are you here because of your own volition? And Kim's over there defining volition for her, you know, yes. And then I said, Abby, I'm eventually going to ask you, why do you want to be baptized? Which is an open-ended question. And, and I said, you know, um, I, we worked with her on what her answer was and though I wish she could have defined the hypostatic union of Christ or something like that. A seven-year-old couldn't quite do that, but Kim and I worked with her to talk about what Jesus meant to her at that age, and we had it down pat. And so we got in the tank that day, and I asked her a couple of the yes and no questions, and she got them down, and then I looked at her, and I said, Abby, now tell the people here, why do you want to be baptized? And bless her little heart, she froze. I mean, it was that deer-in-the-headlights look. She just panicked and froze. And there was about eight long seconds there. And it seemed like an eternity. And I'm dying as the pastor and as her dad. And finally, out of her mouth, she said this. She said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was not the answer we rehearsed. And yet it was exactly the right answer. And I looked at her and I said, Honey, that's exactly why you should want to be baptized. And down she went. Abby was on to something that day. It was exactly the right answer. And that is that the gospel, in a nutshell, is John 3.16. You've all heard it, but don't ever forget it. Five things you'll notice in John 3.16. First, it begins with the most clear thing we can say to people, and that is that God loves them. God loves them. That God created them. He made them in His image. He made us to be good. And that He loves us. And that there isn't one person, not one, in this world that God does not love. I like the way that one church says that all people matter to God. We can affirm that all people matter to God. That's where you start. But then I ask people, you know, given the fact that God loves you and that he made you to be in relationship with him, I ask them, did you come out of the womb like saying, oh, I'm so glad to be here. Where's God? You know, I just can't wait to relate to him and follow him. Did that happen to you? And most people say, no, like that wasn't my experience. And I'll say, yeah, there seemed to be something that separates you from God, right? And again, most honest human beings will say, yeah, there does. Like I tend to kind of go my own way in life. Hmm, Go your own way. The Bible says that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to our own way. But what does the Bible call that, by the way? Do you guys know? Sin. Sin. We don't like to say the word today, but that's the word the Bible uses. That, that all of us, because sin is in our lives, are now separated from God from birth. That's the second thing we need to tell people. There's a problem. Sin, it separates us from God. But here's the third thing, and that is that God has given us a provision. What's his name, church? Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus. That Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, our death, the death that we should have died because of our sin. He died bearing our sins upon him and then rose on the third day. And so I make this very clear to people. Without Jesus, there would be no forgiveness. Without Jesus, there would be no reconciliation with God. We'd still be stuck in our sin. We'd still feel that separation but God has given us Jesus. And so now we have the opportunity to come back to God. So what does God want from us? That's the fourth thing, to believe. So that whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish. He wants us to believe. Interestingly, he doesn't want us to clean up our act 100% before we come to him. He doesn't want us to promise that we're never going to sin again. He doesn't ask us to live some high moral code that he knows we could not live without his help. No, he calls us to a life of faith, which is a relational term, to submit to him, believe in him, to trust him with our lives. And the result is eternal life. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, we now have eternal life, which begins here and ends in heaven. It's a relationship with God. Folks, that's it. It's not more complicated or complex than this. And yet it answers the most profound questions of human existence. Why am I here? What's my life about? Where am I going? And it meets the deepest longings of the human heart, the longing to know and to be known by God. I love how one of my seminary professors years ago, Donald Carson used to say it. He used to say the gospel is shallow enough for a child to play in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. And he's right you're going to want to write that down. It's shallow enough for a child to play in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. That's why a seven-year-old girl can be baptized based on her authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why a 45-year-old guy can find profundity every day in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rich, but it's simple. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we Christians just tend to muddy the waters and we mess it up so often. I mean, we take things away from it and we add to it. I mean, we don't want to talk about sin, so we tend to take that out of the equation. Don't do that. Without sin, without an honest discussion of our need, we have no gospel. And at the same time, don't add to it. We've politicized it. We've economized it. We've added a bunch of moral do's and don'ts to it that come after one comes to Christ, but not before. They can't clean up their act without Jesus. So don't take away, don't add it, keep it simple. It's an awesome and life-changing message that God has given us. He wants us to run our lives for Him with this message into a hopeless world that longs for some grace and truth. So you want to run well for God? Be like Jonah. Be very clear about the message you bring to others. Now, there's more here, but much more to having an effective run for God. And so here's the second thing that Jonah teaches us, and that is to allow the message to flow out of your knowledge and experience. Allow the message, what we just looked at, to flow out of your knowledge and your experience. You know, it's fascinating. There's actually some hints in the text here that Jonah didn't just share a message, but that he actually shared a little bit about his experience that he had before he got to Nineveh. If you look down there at verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And key to understanding this is some commentary that Jesus gave us 600 years later on this story here. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 30. Jesus is referencing the story of Jonah, and he says this. He says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be a sign to this generation. Interesting. He says Jonah became a sign to his generation. And one of the things that Bible experts wrestle with is, does that mean that his words became a sign? Or did his entire life and experience become a sign? See where we're going here? And where many of them eventually land on, if not most of them, is that the text seems to insinuate that the life of Jonah, his experiences, all of his escapades became a sign to the Ninevites, which means that he would have had to tell them about his experiences. So there's some evidence here that they knew about his call and his running, that they knew about the stormy sea, they knew about being overthrown overboard by panicky sailors, they knew about the great fish and God's rescue. And so if this was correct, then Jonah was sharing both the message and his experience with the Ninevites. And by the way, that happens all the time in the Bible. Paul the Apostle did that, Peter did that, John did that. Uh, The women, Phoebe, they did that. I mean, all the great men and women in the Bible didn't just share a message, they shared their lives and their experiences. I love how the old anonymous saying says it. It says, you might be the only Bible that some people ever read. And the point is clear, that we too must share our lives and our experiences with God as we share this message with other people. I love how one Uh, guy put it years ago to me he said that that jamie when you share your faith you're sharing both his story as well as your story i I like that he said you're sharing his story that's what we just looked at in point one there the gospel message but you're also sharing your story and how you have come to the gospel because that's where the passion is and that's where people are going to be able to relate to you And, and so i don't think there's been one time where I've ever shared my faith, where I haven't told a little bit about my story, even if it's just three or four minutes of how I grew up in a, in a rather non-church going home and had this thirst to ever since I was a young guy. And, and then somebody shared with me the gospel and it made sense to me. And then I came to Christ, but then I ran and then I learned to run back to Him and I experienced His grace and His truth. And I just tell people my story, being very clear as well about what His story is, what the gospel is. And I find that God marries the two. And you know what the cool thing is? is that if you're a believer here in Christ today, you have a story as well. See, the problem is some of you don't think your story is very scintillating. You don't think that your story is very engaging because, you know, like our friend Phil, you were never on drugs and addicted to this and all these other things. Do you you know that your story doesn't have to be that way to be used in the hands of God? You know, my kids have yet, thankfully, to go through a time of massive rebellion. I say that very humbly, but they haven't. My kids aren't going to be telling, at least right now, stories like that. But they all know the Lord. They all have had experiences with Him. And they all have a story to tell. Every one of you has a story to tell. And every one of you who have come to Christ already have something in your story that others need to hear. So be clear. Don't be afraid to share your experiences. And third, and this is so key, and this is going to encourage and free up most of you here right now, remember it's God who changes hearts, not us. Boy, this is all something you need to hear today. Remember that it is God who changes hearts, not us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find there's an immense amount of pressure that we tend to put on ourselves to be ones who make something happen when it comes to sharing our faith. Can can you give me a head nod on that? Are you like that? I, I know I am. I mean, we live in a performance-oriented world. And so I have to perform at my job. I have to perform as a parent. I have to perform in my athletics. And so we just kind of drag that into our Christian faith. And we say, well, we better perform when it comes to sharing our faith. And the pressure's on. I better share it right, and I better share it good, and I better be convincing and persuasive, or I'll mess it all up, and God won't be able to use it. Jonah signed us all the opposite way. Jonah teaches us that it's only God... Who's really the one who can make something happen? That the pressure is really off you and I. I, I want to show you this. Look back again at Jonah 3, and I want you to notice with me simply the enormity of the task <laughs> that was given to Jonah. As we know, he was called to preach to all of Nineveh, and in verse 3, it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Uh, an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Uh, we know that Nineveh was actually destroyed in 612 B.C., but years later, a secular historian before the time of Jesus would actually tell us, and we have to assume it's reliable, how big Nineveh actually was. And, and the secular historian cites that Nineveh was about 55 miles in circumference and that it had walls all the way around it, and at points these walls reached 100 feet high and that there were 1,500 towers around Nineveh. Uh, I would just submit to you that's a big city. 55 miles around it, walls, 55 miles around, walls all around it, 1500 towers. It's an enormous city. And to boot, next week we're going to see that in Jonah 4 verse 11, it tells us that there were 120,000 people in Nineveh who didn't know their right hand from their left hand. Now commentators bicker back and forth on what exactly that means, but what most of them eventually land on is that it's talking about children, right? Don't know their right hand from their left hand. So there was 120,000 children in Nineveh, which gives our best estimate that there was a million people total in Nineveh, which would make sense of a city 55 miles around. So this was a city that population-wise was four times the size of Scottsdale. Four times the size. And so picture this, a huge city with Jonah walking through the center of it, preaching a message of repentance or else, and it must have been quite a sight and it must have drew a lot of attention. I mean, the headlines the next day must have read like "Man who lived in whale three days is in town with a message from God," and and I don't know, and 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 then this is seen that's painted in verses one through four. Now, here's what I need you to see. Look up here on the screen. Look at these passages and what it tells us happens next in the story. Verse five says the people believe God. They believe God. So this man who most likely told them about this almost unbelievable experience of living inside a great fish for three days and then being spewed out and now tells them to repent. They believed that and they turned to God. They turned away from their pagan idols and turned to Jehovah. Then look what happens in verses 5 to 6. It says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And some are saying... What's that about? Just simply know this symbolic gestures back then, symbolizing their humility and reverence for, before God and their brokenness over sin. You and I don't do sackcloth and ashes today, but we cry and we bow our head. We might even bow our bodies. There's lots of things that we do symbolically to show when we're in grieving mode, when we feel bad over our sin, that's what they were doing back then. That's what That symbolizes there. And notice, like this is almost unheard of, that they included the animals in this. I don't know how, but they included the animals in this. And even the king did it. So every living thing in Persia that time was uh, a part of this. And then in verse 8, it says this. It says, and the king said, let them call mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So don't miss that. It was not just belief, not just symbolic gestures, but their actions showed it as well. They had moral behavior change. They put their money where their mouth was. Add all this up, folks. An entire city believing, changing, and repenting because one man who nobody even knew preached a simple message of repentance or else. Some of you are saying, well, that's just the Bible. Well, Read the rest of it. Abraham and Lot tried it with Sodom and Gomorrah and it didn't work. Noah tried it with his generation. It didn't work. Even Jesus, the Son of God, tried it in Nazareth and it didn't work. So we have lots of examples of people who preach a very similar message to get right with God and the culture didn't listen. And yet here, against all odds, it works. How do we explain this? Here's my answer. Only God. It's God. It's God showing us that he's the one who's in charge of the show, not us. He was in charge of Jesus' life, Abraham's life, Noah's life, and Jonah's life. And he chose to cause the nation here to turn to him. But make no mistake, it wasn't about Jonah. We're going to see next week. This guy's still a mess. I mean, this guy still is copping an attitude, and he's still kind of running from God. He's just being God's mouthpiece right now. It, had, I don't, it wasn't Jonah. It was God. Why? Because God is the only one who can change the composition of a human heart. You know, in the end, folks, many of us need to, to really get that when it comes to a person's relationship with Almighty God, it really is between them and Him. I, I wish more Christians would get that. I mean, surely he wants us to love others and care for them. And surely, as we're seeing today, he wants us to carry a message of the gospel to them. But in the last analysis, do we understand that any decision or commitment a person makes about spiritual life as it relates to God is between them and God? I'm very fond of saying (laughs) over the years that the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be a small group event. And it's not. The reality is everybody's going to be presented someday before God. And it's an individual thing. And and to be sure, Jesus taught us this, that God is the one who convicts and God is the one who calls. Look at what Jesus said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John 16. I love this. It says, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Then Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. So let me ask you an obvious and lead-in question. Who is the primary actor and motivator in the lives of those around us, according to Jesus here? i give you a hint. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit, right? It's the Holy Spirit. And yet we feel the need sometimes to make something happen. Folks, this should free us up tremendously. Uh, we tend to place the pressure on us to make something happen. God comes along and says, you know what? It's not about your persuasion. It's not about your convincing. It's not about your right or wrong methods. It's not about whether you even get the words right or not. God's going to use it, taking this simple message that we have, and he'll do his miraculous grace work of grace in people or not because it's his show. You know, one of the ways that I know this to be true is that I look back on the last 25, 30 years of me being a Christian and, and it just, I, I just smile. As I've shared with many of you, when I first became a Christian, I was green, I had very little Bible knowledge, I was brash, I was somewhat arrogant, and I was very excited about Jesus, so I shared him with everybody and anybody, whether they would listen or not. Now, you would not think that that's a recipe for evangelism. And quite frankly, over the years, I've discovered I don't even have the spiritual gift of evangelism. It's not one of my greatest strengths. And yet, wouldn't you know that in those early days, God used me over and over and over and over again to lead people to Christ. And as I think about that, I think, now that I'm more sophisticated, now that you and I are more sophisticated, maybe one of the things we should recognize is that if God can use a young, green, not very knowledgeable and brash follower of Jesus to build his kingdom, then just maybe he can use you and I. And maybe one of the things that we need to remember is that it's not about us. It's about Him. Take the pressure off. And so be clear. Share your life. Remember that it's God, not you. And very quickly, more quickly, akin to this last point, don't feel like you have to do everything right. This is another area we get stuck. We're just perfectionists. We feel like we've got to get it right. You know, it's interesting. I hinted this earlier that struck me about Jonah 3 here is that Jonah's attitude and approach is still not quite 100%. In chapter 3, here. And we're going to actually get to the end of chapter 4, and his attitude's not going to be 100%. In other words, this guy's still kind of copying an attitude, and I think you see kind of nuggets of this in chapter 3 here. In verse 4, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message he gave him. And what I simply want you to notice is that Jonah, who still kind of has an attitude here, uh, gives no more and no less than what God told him to say, right? I mean, there's no mention here of God's unconditional and merciful love, in the Hebrew called kessed love, that, that existed in the Old Testament. He makes no mention of God's holy and perfect law that reflects his character. He makes no mention of his mighty and awesome deeds that he did during the Exodus event or on Mount Carmel with Elijah. None of it. Just a simple message of repentance. And though some argue that he just did what God asked him to do, that he did what God told him to do when you realize Jonah's underlying attitude that we're going to see next chapter and then realize that he could have said a bit more to be just a bit more accurate about who God is, you begin to see that he was not exactly a perfect vessel for communicating God's truth to these people. And I think that's part of the point, that we don't have to do everything right to be used by God in reaching others. Listen, church, he knows that you're imperfect he knows that we're falling. He knows that we're going to mess it up. He knows that we get tired, that we get angry, that we get confused, that we get weary. He knows this. The book of Hebrews says is that Jesus was tempted with everything that we were, this side of heaven, and yet was without sin. He knows it all. The reality is, is he still says, run for me. And even on your weekdays, when you're kind of messing it up, I'm going to use you. And again, I know this is true. I can just tell you as your pastor from my anecdotal experience over the last 30 years. I mean, I laugh at this now, but there are some days, and I know you have days like this too, maybe not with evangelism, but in your own area of of influence. There are some days where I'm just firing on all eight cylinders. I don't mean to be prideful about it, but I'm just doing well. And so there's some days where I'm sharing my faith with people, and I'm just thinking to myself, this is really good. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm sharing it clear. I'm sharing it persuasively. I mean, how could you argue with this? I'm sharing it lovingly, which my wife always tells me to do. I'm thinking, I'm doing it all right. And they say no. They dig their heels and they say, I'd rather have none of that, thank you. Or I'll be on a plane and I'll be over winsome. And they find out I'm a pastor and the big wall goes up and there's nothing's happening. Like no one's home. And then there's other times where I share my faith. And isn't it interesting I don't feel like sharing it. I really don't feel a lot of love for the person right then. I'm kind of like Jonah in chapter 3 here. I'm doing it more out of duty and obligation. And the person starts to cry and receives Christ. I go, what's that about? It it reminds me once again, it's God. He's not asking me to do everything right. Don't get me wrong. We need to do attitude checks. We'll talk about that next week. But the reality is he's going to use us nonetheless. This should take the pressure off you. And then lastly, and this one brings it all together allow evangelism to be a process allow it to be a process and you know what else has hit me over the years about verse four it's that little phrase yet 40 days yet 40 days and 40 days might not seem like a long time to you and me today but do you realize it's a relatively long process given god's other predictions of wrath in the old testament and the new let me test your bible knowledge did god give sodom and gomorrah 40 days no not even close uh, when Jesus told the disciples to shake their dust off the sandals of towns that wouldn't listen to them, did he say, and by the way, wait 40 days? No, he didn't. He said like two hours, like leave right away. So we got other instances in the Bible where God didn't give people 40 days. And so what commentators wrestle with is why here, why 40 days? And you know what most of them say is that God was giving them plenty of time to think, believe, and repent. It was what my wife calls process time. Uh, they needed process time. And by the way, this had nothing to do with eternal life and salvation. I mean, this had to do with specific sin and repentance. So one would think that when it came to eternal salvation, even more so is there a need for process time. See, here's what we need to remember today. Evangelism is a process. But one of the greatest problems of American Christianity is that we made everything a technique. Have you ever noticed that? Everything's a technique. So we've made evangelism today a technique that feels about as fake as a $3 bill for most of the people around us, and we've also relegated it to an event. We make evangelism an event. Come to this event, and you're going to accept Christ. It'll be an event. And I'm not saying God can't do that, but you look closely. Most of the turnings in people's minds and hearts in the Bible is a process. Peter's life was a process. James and John, it was a process. Even Paul, though there was an event that led him to the Lord, it was a process, three years that he doesn't even write about after that. We need to see evangelism today as a process. There are some people I've been sharing my faith with now, ever since I became a Christian in 1981, and they haven't budged yet. Some of them are family members, and I'm still with them, and I'm still going to love them. Why? Because it's a process. and, And we honor the fact that it's a process. Again, go back to those other principles. It's between them and God. It's running for God. It's what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, when it comes to our usefulness in God's hands. And so here's the deal. He loves you. Take that home with you today. There's no doubting that. And he loved Jonah too. But one of the things that we need to own is that he also loves others, all others around us. And he calls us to run for him by sharing his love and his truth with those around us. And all I can say is that I can't imagine what our community is and will be like as more and more of us take the courage and the love to share this with those around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that once again your word comes along and uh, in story form uh, lifts our sights beyond the here and now to what our lives can be as we follow you. And so God, I know this is a tough topic for many of us to deal with. It's filled with lots of fears and apprehensions and, and, and such. But Father, I pray that as we dig deep in our souls and think about those that we love that we want to see in eternity with us forever, that uh, God, you would help us to be men and women who are clear by the gospel, who aren't afraid to share our experiences, who realize that it's you at the end of the day who changes hearts, so we don't have to get everything right, and Lord, help us to honor the process. May we be like Jonah in that way. Lord, if we come to the communion table now. May uh, you receive this time of worship as, uh, as our final act today in our gathering together. And may you bless us in it, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.